And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. It's an exciting uh, chapter for us. And uh, if you guys want to turn there or open there. I'm going to start just reading a little bit at the end of chapter 10, just so you remember where we're coming from. Remember, as we look at Isaiah, the story of Isaiah, right, is, is a series of prophecies about here's where the people are, not such a great place. And then there's foreshadowing about here's where the people will be one day. And the story of Isaiah is how do we get from this to that? How do we grow from who we are, broken, fallen, stuck in sin or rebellion against God, to become the people uh, that God calls us to be? So we see this story work its way all the way through the book of Isaiah. Now, in chapter 7, we began to talk about this child. Remember Christmas time, we, we always refer to uh, some of the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 7 talks about the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son. Chapter 9 verse 6 talks about unto us a child is given. So we have this picture of this child that's going to come somehow and change everything, right? He's going to put everything, um, the government of his shoulders is going to be eternal. So there's a radical transformation that's going to take as a result of this child. But in, in dispersed between all that, you have this picture of Assyria. They're the bad guys. And Assyria is coming from the north. And they're coming down. They're going to conquer Israel. And then they're going to go through Israel and come down to Judah, to Jerusalem. And they're going to threaten Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel. And so as they're coming down, the Lord gives this little prophecy. This is the end of the prophecy in chapter 10. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So God's saying, when the Assyrian army comes down against Judah, God's going to do something and he pictures it like a forest being all chopped down. So all that's going to be left is stumps. So that's where chapter 10 closes. Chapter 10 closes with the idea, the judgment that has come down through Israel. The people who did, who brought that judgment, ultimately God's going to stop them from coming down into Judah. And you have stumps everywhere. And then chapter, that's why it's important to understand that when you look at chapter 11 verse 1, right? Because chapter 11 verse 1 says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So you have this picture, this prophetic picture of a child deliverer that's coming somewhere, you know, in the future. <clears throat> Isaiah is telling the people who right now in their life, right now, that Assyrian army hasn't been dealt with yet. They're still coming. So they're afraid of Assyria. We're not going to see the actual battle that takes place between God and Assyria until chapter 38. So we're in chapter 11. It's still quite a ways off yet in the future. So they're worried about that. But in, in between all these prophecies of judgment is coming and the hard times and the difficulties that are being faced, God keeps putting these pictures of hope. Because our, our focus is not supposed to be on the, the hard part. We're supposed to look past that. Right? When Paul writes, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind, I press on toward the upward call of Christ Jesus. I put my eyes on Jesus and I keep moving forward. He's my reward. So Isaiah is given to the people of Israel 
their reward. He's saying there's coming a day. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. Chapter 11 is, there'll be a lot of verses you'll be familiar with as we work our way through here. <clears throat> but chapter 11 is going to open those things up for us so that we can see this shoot from Jesse, which is a re- reference back to the child, right? The son that is given. The child that will be born, a son will be given. A uh, virgin will conceive all of these pictures which point to Jesus Christ in his fulfillment. So, <clears throat> again, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So we have this field of stumps. Assyria is going to be put down, but Israel's not. Israel's going to be conquered, but it's not going to be over for them. Even though all that's left is a stump, something of life is going to come from that stump. If you remember in chapter 6, Isaiah 6, 13, it said, And though a tenth remain in it, so so every nine-tenths is gone, but though there's only a tenth in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. And then listen to this phrase, but the holy seed is in the stump. So in the remnant, in what's left behind, it, it has within itself... The seed, a reference to Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming forward. And the idea is this smallest shoot is going to come. It's just a little tiny sprout of growth out of a dead-looking stump. If you remember Isaiah 53, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So in Isaiah 53, there's a prophecy about Messiah, about Jesus Christ. And he's described in the same way, like a tender shoot. In fact, in Matthew we read, the Bible says that uh, Jesus would be called a Nazarene, as it said in the Scriptures. And, and so we search the scriptures and we think, where did the Bible say Jesus was going to be a Nazarene? Well, the word for Nazarene Hebrew is Natser. It means the branch. The branch. Jesus, the picture of being the branch. What's this branch going to do? What's this little thing, this little stump in, the, in Isaiah? What has he told us so far? He's going to bring the restoration of the nation, going to heal the nation, the end of war, and world security. All is going to come through him. Through his work. Isaiah, if you remember, Isaiah 9, 5-7. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So they're not going to dress for war no more. They're going to use it to, to warm themselves. They're going to burn all that. For unto us a child is born, and a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the angel armies, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So the the picture of, of this, this all is described in Isaiah as this tender 
shoot that's going to grow from the stump. And the idea that it's going to come from the root. The root is the cause. Who is the cause of the stump of Jesse? Who brought Jesse into being? God did. God's the cause. So you have this branch coming from the cause through the stump of Jesse, uh, which all of this is a, is a reference, right, pointing to Jesus Christ. And the emphasis, the reason he doesn't use David is he's emphasizing the fact that who is it that could take Jesse and make his family the royal line? Who could do that? He was just a peasant. He's just a guy in his field, right? Who was David? Just the youngest kid that they didn't want to have around the house, right? He was a maniac. So they kept him out with the sheep. So when Samuel came to look for the next king, and and God said, go to Jesse's house, And he went through all his sons, and God didn't pick any of them. So he said, is there any more? Well, yeah, it's the youngest one, but he's out there. You don't want him. And the Lord says to Samuel, that's the one I want. I want that one. All throughout Scripture, you see God choosing the outcast. You would have never picked Jacob. If we were sitting there looking at Jacob and Esau, you'd have picked Esau. So would I. Esau's outdoorsy guy, you know, he... He was a man's man. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver, always trying to rip people off. Yeah, we wouldn't have liked him. But God picked him. See, God makes a, a eternal history out of choosing the outcast to perfect his plan. Over and over and over again. In fact, in the lineage of Jesus, we have uh, one full-fledged prostitute, one woman who pretended to be a prostitute, and one adulteress. Right smack dab in the middle of the line of Messiah. Not to even talk about all the crooked, messed up dudes that are in that line. But the point is, God's the picture that God's painting for us is that God redeems it all. We're all messed up or broken or fail in one way or another, but God... If you, if you have, add God into our equation, you have the ability for redemption to take place and something glorious to come out of the stump, to come out of whatever is left. Jeremiah 23.5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will raise up for David a, ra- a righteous branch, <coughs> and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice And righteousness in the land. So the branch, this picture of this shoot coming forth out of the stump, life from death is a picture of Messiah. Messiah coming. Now, how are we going to recognize Messiah? We'll recognize him by what it says in verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Now think back to John the Baptist. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of, of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then the Spirit descends on Jesus and drives him out into the wilderness, remember? And he's gone for 40 days. And John says when he came back in, John the Baptist looked at the one upon whom the Spirit remained. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, tells his disciples, stop following me. He's the one. This is the one that you need to follow. So the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. <clears throat> the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight 
His joy is going to be the fear of the Lord. What is it that Jesus says? He says, I always do those things which please my Father, right? I say the things my Father wants me to say. I do the things my Father wants me to do. So all of this points to that. How will we recognize? How are we going to know this is the Messiah? How will we make a distinction between Messiah and just another good king? Well, there's going to be quite a distinction between just another good king. On the day when the king of kings returns, the spirit of the living God is going to be evident upon him. You remember the day he was baptized, right? The heavens opened up. A voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The spirit descended upon him like a dove. God, that, that was not like just any other king. That was something special. Who did he reveal it to? All the people who were coming out to repent, right? To John the Baptist. Who was coming out to repent? All the outcasts. All the dregs. All the people that were running out of hope and didn't know what to do and were looking for a savior and salvation and recognized that their lives are upside down and they need somebody to make it upside right. So they follow John. Somebody says, John the Baptist out there, he's baptizing people and telling them that the Messiah that Isaiah was talking about, he's come. And so that, that's the people who were out there. Who were the disciples who followed him? Just a bunch of mishmash group of uh, crazy guys, no? Fishermen, shepherds, tax collectors, zealots. Yeah, at least one betrayer. So we, we know there was quite the, the crowd that was uh, set around him. It says in John chapter 2, verse 24, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And indeed, uh, no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Over and over again in the life of Christ, what do we see? He doesn't fall for any tricks. He knows what they're doing. Right? They ask question A, he answers the real issue in problem B. He, he goes right to the heart of the issues. In Mark 2.8 it says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? <clears throat> so we see just what Isaiah 11.2 said, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge with Christ pointing out, illustrating for us what, uh, what a life wholly and completely surrendered to the Father and empowered by the Spirit looks like. That's why Jesus would say, the things you've seen me do and greater you can do. He doesn't do it, he doesn't accomplish any of this by his own power as God. He comes and he relies on the Holy Spirit and on his Father and he illustrates for us how to walk. Follow me. Isn't that what he said? Follow me. It's not, I can't follow him. He was God. No, it's I can follow him because the same thing that is with him, the same person, the Holy Spirit, can be with us as well. Luke 4.1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Luke 4.14 said, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out throughout all the surrounding country. Man, there's a guy out here full of the Holy Spirit. He's healing people. It's crazy. You've got to come out and see. Luke 4.18 quotes Isaiah 61 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what Jesus came to do. We know he stopped in the middle of the verse, right? He stopped right before the the great and terrible judgment of God. So we find ourselves in a comma, the period of time that we are in. Judgment hasn't fallen yet, but there's always that call. Just like the prophet said to Israel and Judah, judgment's coming. You need to repent and get your heart right with God. God's going to do a new thing. Here's our hope. We're looking for that hope. But we need to get lives right with the Lord so that we're ready. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Holy Spirit's going to be on this branch that grows out of the stump that's left behind when Israel is no more. And we know that happened. That's historical, right? Israel was nothing. Israel was nothing. Babylon conquered them. The temple's destroyed. There's nothing there. Shouldn't even be a nation anymore. And Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people go back, is a small, tiny number insignificant remnant that goes back to Israel. But from that tiny remnant, from that little stump, comes a shoot. The Messiah, the one who has the answer for the rest of the world. So, in verse 3, he goes on <coughs> to tell us, what's his rule going to be like? What will be the rule? How will Messiah rule? We know Messiah came this time for a purpose, right? He didn't come to, to uh, sit on a throne as king. He came to reconcile men. If we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you have one story. The story, there's a lot of things God has done over the history of mankind. All we know about from Genesis to Revelation is the things God chose to reveal to us about how God redeems mankind. In the beginning of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 10, you have the fall of man, the corruption of man, and the rebellion of man. Which leads, in Genesis chapter 10, to God disinheriting mankind. The Tower of Babel incident, the confusion of the languages, and the people scattered. And in chapter 12, what takes place in chapter 12 is God chooses one man out of the masses. And he calls to him and he says, from you, Abraham, I'm going to have, I'm going to bring my seed through you. The same seed that we talk about in Isaiah, the fulfillment of the prophecy of of Messiah coming, I'm going to bring that seed through you. And so the rest of the story, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is God's work of redemption, which he accomplishes at the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, paves the way for you and I so that we can receive him as our king, walk with him, and we, like Israel, looking forward to the return of the king. What happens in Revelation? The king comes back. Revelation chapter 19. The king of kings, lord of lords, returns. Feet touch the ground. He comes back. And when he comes back, what's that kingdom going to be like? Isaiah 11 verse 3. It says here, His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. What would it be like to have a judge who had all knowledge? God is omniscient, means he knows everything. 
So what would it be like? Just for example, take this election we just went through. What would it be like to have all knowledge so that when somebody talked to you, you knew if they were lying or not? You knew what game they were playing. You, you, you knew. <clears throat> if you were a judge and two people came up to you and each side is yelling and screaming, I didn't do it, he did it, he didn't, I didn't do it, he did it, and you don't know who's telling the truth. And right now, how do we decide those kind of cases? We choose 12 people from among us, right? And those 12 people sit and listen to all the arguments. Now, are any of those 12 people omniscient? And they listen to the arguments, and then what are they judged by? What they see and what they hear. But it says Jesus is not going to judge by what he sees or what he hears. He's going to judge by what he knows. And he's going to rule in perfect righteousness and justice. Perfect justice. No more can you be falsely accused. No more could anybody be falsely accused because Jesus Christ cannot be fooled. He cannot be fooled in any way. So he's going to have absolute justice because he has absolute knowledge. Nobody will be able to lie. (coughs) And he will judge the poor. The idea is he's going to watch out for them. It was always part of the, 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 um, the oath that the king would give in Israel to say, I promise to take care of the poor and the orphan and the widow. I promise to do this. But Jesus will actually do it. A lot of people make promises. Even good kings make promises that they don't fulfill, right? But Jesus is going to be able to judge the poor. He'll be able to protect them. He'll be able to watch over them. And then he says it will, he will strike the earth. <coughs> he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So the rod, if you guys want to understand that, the rod is a picture of the standard. What will be the standard of morality? You know, if you don't have an all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe, how do you have morality at all? Who says something's right or wrong? Who says it's good or bad? By what standard? If there is no God, who says I have to talk to you coherently? Who says I have to follow the laws of logic? Who says one plus one is two? Why does it have to be any of those things? Without God, you have none of that. With God, you have this standard. The rod is the standard. It's an iron rod. That means it don't bend. You're not going to walk over to it and go, okay, this is a standard, but let's bend it. There we go. There, now you can get under it. Oh, it's standard. This is the standard. God's morality. That will be the standard by which the earth will be, will be governed. That means a lot of incredible things for, for people on earth. And the point is, only the wicked need to be afraid. The, the, the righteous, those who want to follow the standard of God, they don't have a problem, right? They're going to they're gonna follow what he says. It's only the wicked. He says, with the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. The picture is this with his word. What's the final arbiter of truth? The world is clamoring for what is truth. What is truth? It's ever since Pilate said, Ked est veritas. He said to Jesus, the one who is the truth. What is truth? But he didn't stay for an answer. He just turned around and walked away. He was following the, his unction that, how can I know the truth? I can only know the truth if I know everything. Because what I think I know could be 
could be contradicted by what I don't know. So how can there be any truth? This is the whole argument for whether or not there can be such a thing as absolute truth. But the reality is, when you posit God, when God enters into the equation, (coughs) you have a being through whom you can know absolute truth. Jesus didn't say, I know the truth. What did he say? I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What he speaks is always true. What comes out of his mouth will be absolute truth. That's the absolute standard through which this king is going to rule and reign. Verse 5 says, Righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The two things everybody on earth wants from any relationship. Righteousness and faithfulness. You want somebody to be true to you, and you want somebody to be faithful. And those are the two things by which you... It holds up everything about who this king is. It holds up everything about him, that he is true and he is faithful. He will do what is right and just. And he will always be faithful. No, no be- betraying within him. <clears throat> then he goes into this incredible picture of the safety of his rule. When Jesus rules as king, what's it going to be like? Well, this should be some of the things you've heard before, right? Well, you... People tend to mix these verses up, but you'll get it when we get there, right? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with a young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on an adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? Because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And it will cover the waters, as, or will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. <clears throat> so the picture, he's using metaphor, okay? So when he's using metaphor, he's painting a picture for us. What does it mean? It means... You're not going to have to be afraid of anything anymore. If you were looking out and a little child was playing next to a rattler, you wouldn't be worried about it. Today you would. Right? If a, if a baby was just laid down on top of a cobra den, I think we'd have a problem with that. No? Or if you saw a wolf just trotting up to where all your sheep are. Yeah? That, that, that would get the blood pumping now, wouldn't it? But the point that he's making is the most helpless and the most innocent of all of creation will be at ease with what used to be the most violent. Perfect peace. What makes that perfect peace? What what causes that perfect peace is going to be Messiah. Everyone's going to realize that there's a dependence upon one another. All of creation, we're, we're all part of one family. It's so dumb how much we fight and hate and spew our derision upon one another because one side has a different view than the other side. But if Jesus is king and we're all following the king, we won't have anything to divide us anymore. There won't be anybody in the street saying, he's not my king. 
when Jesus comes back, it's going to be perfect peace set up by his kingdom. He says, they shall not hurt in all my holy mountain. Mountains are a picture of kingdoms. We'll see it when we studied Revelation, we talked about it. If you remember the, <coughs> the vision of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Remember the statue, head of gold, chest of silver, right? You guys with me? Which is symbolic of all the kingdoms of men. What happens to all the kingdoms of men? Is, is uh, Babylon still here? Nope. Is Medo-Persian still here? Nope. What about the Greeks? Are the Greeks in power now? Nope. What about Rome? Nope. What is the one thing we know about every single kingdom on earth? Is Britain the kingdom that owns the world? What about the Ottomans? Do the Ottomans say they ruled for 800 years, or, or do they rule the world now? No. What, what do all kingdoms of the earth have in common? They start and they end. And something else comes up to, to say we're better. And they start and they end. And something else comes up to say we're better. Every single kingdom has done that throughout the history of mankind. At the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what happens? A little stone, not cut out with hands, lands at the feet of that statue. A little stone. And the whole statue blows up into powder and blows away. And that little stone grows up into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Mountain's a kingdom. What kingdom is that? That's the kingdom of God. What's, does God's kingdom have an end? No. No end. No breakdown of justice. No breakdown of mercy. No breakdown of grace. None of that. It's perfect. It's right. It's the utopia that we all look for, but we're stuck writing dystopic novels because we realize we can't achieve a utopia. That's why we write dystopian literature. Dystopian literature is that thing that paints like, well, it's supposed to be a perfect utopia, but it's really, we're eating each other, right? What was that movie in the 70s? You guys remember? Solient Green or... <coughs> now, now you guys know how old I am. But, they, but the point was, the point of all those, why do we write like that? Because we can't get in our head how we're ever going to arrive... At perfect peace. Well, we don't have the king of kings. We don't have a king who... We do not have... If we had a king now who knew everything and had all power, then we would have perfect peace. But you don't. The point of Isaiah is, here we are in this world striving and we're having troubles, tribulation, difficulties. But God says, look ahead. I promise I'm coming. I came once, I will come again. And that's the, that's the hope that he's laying out for Isaiah. He's going to come. <clears throat> there will be ultimate authority, perfect peace. That, that's a great thing to keep our, our mind or our eyes on. And then he talks about how's it going to look, the, the promised return. The promised return. What's that promised return going to look like? Verse 10. In that day... <coughs> the root of juicy. Uh, All right. I got a cold. Anybody else got one? You want this one? I'll sell it cheap. All right. Let's see if that gets me. Okay. In, the, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Now, I just want you to picture what that means. 
the shoot of Jesse, Messiah, somehow Messiah is going to stand like a banner for the peoples. It's like he's going to be lifted up so they can see him. That should remind us of something, shouldn't it? In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When was he lifted up? On the cross. On the cross, he made way for there to be reconciliation between rebellious, corrupt, sinful men. So that we can enter into a relationship for him by which we can be empowered by him to share that good news with others and look forward to the return of the king. He's going to be a symbol, a banner for all peoples. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time. He extended it once, he's going to extend it a second time. Now, I think he's referring to Exodus here, because we'll see that come up in verse 15 and 16. The picture of Exodus, that's where we get the concept of Passover, right? And everything in the Old Testament, God's always reminding his people, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, remember the Exodus, where I took you from bondage, right? The picture from bondage to sin, and I set you free, brought you through the wilderness to the promised land. Now he's saying yet a second time this is going to happen. Messiah is going to recover the remnants that remain of his people. Where is he going to get them from? Well, he's going to tell you. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He's going to get them from everywhere. They're going to come from the four corners of the earth. Because God's people are all over the globe. And they're all going to come to the call of the king. (coughs) Even though, in one hand, God's judgment might destroy, his other hand brings redemption. What's that point? It's no different than a father with his children. The Bible says, if you hate your children, then don't discipline them. But if you love them, then discipline them promptly. So God disciplines his children to get them on track to get them in line for what purpose to make them miserable no what does he say in jeremiah 29 11 i know the thoughts that i have toward you thoughts of good and not of evil for what to give you a future and a hope <clears throat> i want to bring you home i want to get you across the finish line come follow me come trust me and so in verse 12 it says he will raise a signal for the nations and they will assemble the banished of Israel, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So it's like he blows a trumpet and everybody says, hey, it's time to go home. It's time to go home. And they all return for the restoration of the king. Verse 13, it says, Now the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. What we've been talking about is there are two kingdoms now. There used to be one. When David was king, there was one country, right? Israel. And then Solomon was king, and they have the height, right? They have more wealth than they ever had, more peace than they ever had. But Solomon's son was a fool, and he divided the kingdom. So now you have two kingdoms. What are they called? Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south. 
And he says when Messiah comes, he's going to divide that. There's not going to be this animosity anymore between north and south. There's not going to be this bickering and fighting between them. They're going to be unified. How is it that man's going to, man will be unified? How will south, the north and the south be unified? Because they have one king. Jesus. And if Jesus is my king, then I can find peace for my brother as long as his king is Jesus. We have the same king. What do we have in common? Jesus, right? We have Jesus in common. He's that thing that anchors us together, that brings us together. No more fear over our neighbors, <coughs> but the ability to do what God said in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a New Testament concept. That's old. In Leviticus, God said, love your neighbor as yourself. We're supposed to do good to our neighbor, right? Not eat our neighbor. How do we know? Because God told us how to have that relationship. What's that relationship supposed to look like? Supposed to look like love, caring, right? Love your neighbor. So God will defeat all of the enemies and all will have submitted to him. And then there will be perfect peace. Everybody's going to come together. The difficulty that the, the children of Israel had is recognizing that they're part of the enemy too. Right? Because they thought, well, we have special blood. There's always some group that thinks they got the special blood, right? Or nowadays, maybe it's a special color. If I'm the right color, then, then somehow I have, I'm something special. Or... You know, if I, if I come from the right family line or the right family tree. All the way through scripture, what God was telling the nation of Israel is you're a picture. You're a small picture of the whole world. You're all broken and you need to come to me to be redeemed. But Israel thought, nope, all those people are a mess and we need to stay away from them. And it's just us. Oh, it was never going to be that way. When God first calls Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a light. To the nations. You're going to be my light. Because right now the nations are dwelling in darkness. But the light's going to come. I'm going to shine the light of the truth. So that they can find their way home. Just like the prodigal son. Finding his way home. Eventually coming back to dad. That's what we see taking place here. They're going to, they're going to see the restoration of the king. They're all going to come together. They're all going to come back to him. It says, uh, but they will swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They will put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will obey them. Those are all the traditional enemies. And he's saying, all the, you're not going to have to be afraid of enemies anymore. Why? Because the lamb and the wolf are going to be able to sojourn together. Because the lion's going to eat straw. Because a little baby can play by the adder's den, by the poisonous snakes, and not have to worry. Because we're not going to study war no more. Isn't that something worth keeping a focus on? Moving forward, trying to keep that in our attention, instead of turning on Fox and worrying about an invasion from Mexico? You guys know how far you are from Mexico, by the way? Man, there's nobody coming to Idaho. Especially because it would be winter by the time they get there. They turn around and go back south where it's warm. 
We don't need to worry about that. What do we need to worry about? About proclaiming the coming king. That's what Jesus said. Go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things I taught you. And lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. That's the call, isn't it? But we get distracted, right? We get distracted by events around us. I didn't say don't be informed. Just don't be distracted. How do I keep from being distracted? Keep my eyes on the prize. Paul said, right? Forgetting those things which lie behind, I turn around and put my eyes on Jesus and I move forward. I move forward because until he comes, it don't matter. I've been alive a long time. Some of you guys have been alive longer than me. I promise you, whatever problems we have in the world today will be here 10 years from now. They'll just be different. But there'll be problems. Whatever people are, whatever refugees we're struggling with, they'll just be different refugees. But there, has there ever been a time when there hasn't been refugees? Not in my life. My whole life, from when I was a child, I can remember watching things on the news about refugees looking for a place to land. My whole, that's just the, the nature of mankind. Because mankind's kingdoms are fallible and broken until Jesus Christ rules and reigns as king. That's how it's going to be. I'm not going to waste my time focusing on all of that when I have a commission. What is my commission? What is my job? Tell people about Jesus. Tell them about the coming king. Tell them about living a life submitted to him. Tell them about the ability that God has to redeem my life. Because once upon a time, my life was going nowhere. <clears throat> and I'm not that much better a person now than I was then. The difference is, Jesus Christ rules in my life now. So the reason I want to love my neighbor, because Jesus tells me to, and I'm submitted to him. So you don't have to be afraid. When the world sees things like that, peace is the natural course. That's the reality that takes place. Look what he says in 15 and 16. Now the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. What's the point? What's he talking about? He's talking about I'm calling all the people to me. Well, when all the people are trying to come, remember how it was in, uh, in Egypt when the children of Israel were trying to leave, they got stuck, right? Between a rock and a hard place. Red Sea on one side. <coughs> big rock on one side. Cliffs on the other side. Got nowhere to go. So who did they turn to for help? God. What did he do? Part the Red Sea. And when he parted the Red Sea, the children of Israel walked across on dry ground, right? They didn't have to be afraid of the waters. What's he saying here? He's going to remove anything that stops people from coming to him. I'm going to take it all out of the way. I'll, I'll take the Euphrates River and spread it into seven different channels so you can walk across it in your sandals and not be afraid. I'll remove, I'll part the Red Sea again just so you can come home. Just so that you can come back. So that you know that you have a place to return to. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. As there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. So he's saying, now keep in mind, there still is a south and north kingdom. They haven't gone through 
that judgment. They, haven't, they, they know Assyria is coming, but they haven't been conquered yet. But when they are, how is this hopeful to them? Because even though they may be drugging chains back to Assyria, they can look at Isaiah and say, Isaiah, Isaiah told us God's going to make a way for us to go home. That this is not forever. That this is not the total summation of our lives. But that there will be a day of peace. There is a day coming. And that's the thing that God wants his people to put their eyes on. Here we are. We're this Israel. Rebellious, corrupt, right? And sinful. And we, we don't want to trust God and we don't want to follow God. And we're unfaithful to him and we don't put our eyes on him. But God says, one day you're going to be in Israel who comes when I call. Well, how do we get there? Isaiah chapter 6 told us, right? Remember Isaiah stands before God Almighty. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I stood before the Lord. And his train filled the temple. And he stands there and he says, woe is me. I'm unclean. First time, right? We, we get, probably not the first time, but <clears throat> first time there's recognition, right? I I'm unclean. I need a savior. I need somebody to cleanse me. So when he says that to God, what did God do? He threw a lightning bolt at him, right? And smoked him right there. No, he took a coal. An angel flew it over to him and touched his lips and said, boom, you're pure. And the very next thing God said is, who will go tell my people? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. I'll go tell them. So the point is that that's the promise. And all the way through Isaiah, we're going to get stretches of judgment coming, God asking his people to trust him, he has a plan, and then he's going to give us a vision of the end. So that we can keep our eyes on the prize, and not on the valley of the shadow of death we walk through. Anybody ever walk through the valley of the shadow of death? It's good news that you just go through it. You don't have to live there. Right? He will get us through. That's what he's telling the people of Israel. That's what he wants us to understand. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. God, I pray that <coughs> can make sense to us. Lord, that we can put the dots together. See where the dots connect. Lord, I pray the things, uh, you know, that that uh, were of me, just wash that away, Lord. Allow your word to find fruitful soil in the lives of, of your people and bring forth your fruit. Even out of the stump of my life, God, you can bring forth a shoot, a branch. You can bring life from the dead. You can breathe life into my life and you can cause this redeemed life to become a picture of that heavenly kingdom that will reign one day so god we just look to you for you indeed are able to do abundantly above all we ask or imagine so we pray god you help us keep our eyes on you and you do a perfect work we give you praise for it all in jesus name we pray amen